0: First, I'd like to thank the organizers of the event for the opportunity to speak with you tonight. I I consider it an honor and a privilege to address you. Um, NASA is entering another phase of experimental flight research, and I was asked to talk about the future of X aircraft. But in order to do that, I feel like I need to go back and first take a look into the past. With the recent 70th anniversary of the X-1 supersonic flight, I will start with early X-planes, followed by a section touching on some of the X-planes I've had the opportunity to work on, and then I'll finish with a discussion of the upcoming series of X-airplanes. And uh, last but not least, before I go on, I'd like to thank everybody back at Armstrong that helped me pull this presentation together. Uh Uh-oh, that was the wrong button. (laughs) In respect to the original transonic and supersonic flight research, why come west to Muroc Airfield for this work? Why not conduct it in the high-speed wind tunnel at Langley? And then, when trying to do transonic research, they found that the wind tunnels yielded erratic data at best. The Army Air Force, later the United States Air Force, had been using the Muroc site since the early 30s, and it was home for the flight testing of America's first jet-powered airplane, the XP-59. I'd like to point out that Muroc Airfield is much better known as Edwards Air Force Base now. And Armstrong is a a tiny tenant in the corner of the base. When the the original, this is South Base, what we call South Base, that's where the original X-plane testing took place. And then NASA occupies this little corner. And the rest of that is Air Force property. And we are tenants on the Air Force base. And why are you in the Mojave Desert for testing airplanes? Well, it's exactly as barren and desolate as it looks in this picture. Uh, it was uh, back in 1946, it was even more austere. And it, you know, the, the lake bed and the restricted airspace around it provide. The ideal setting for the testing of experimental airplanes, it's, uh, and as, as well as nowadays, modern times, we have the hard surface runways. There are also 63 miles of lakebed runways marked out, and it provides the opportunity you never have to make a crosswind landing if you're in an emergency with an airplane. The winter rains render the lakebed unusable during the winter, but they're also essential because the motion of the waves resurface the lake bed, and then as it dries out, it recompacts it, and the lakebed is harder than concrete. The initial flights of the X-1 were performed at Pine Castle Airfield near Orlando, Florida, and there are advocates for competing that flight research there or moving it back to Langley Research Center, which is the mother center for all of the NASA field centers. Walt Williams, who in the future became one of our Center Directors, was one of the advocates to move to Southern California and along with the Army Air Force and Bell Aircraft, who, the manufacturers of the aircraft, the X-1 arrived at Muroc in October of 1946 with a team of Langley operations engineers setting the stage for the year-long campaign to achieve supersonic flight. In September 1947, Dr. Hugh L. Dryden, as director of research for the National Advisory Council for Aeronautics, or the NACA, named the flight test unit at Muroc to be a permanent facility. And it's setting the stage for the decades to come and the current incarnation of Armstrong Flight Research and the 70 plus years of flight research we've conducted there. Right button this time. The X-1 and subsequent X airplanes were different from previous aircraft. They were designed and built to answer specific questions about aerodynamic structure, power, control, thermostructural characteristics, human physiology, and to explore specific regions of flight. These were not pre-production fighters or pre-production bombers, but flying experiments, and they were unique. Usually one or two of any configuration was all that was built. This project created a pattern of ex-airplane development involving the NACA, branches of the military, and aircraft manufacturers. The NACA's initial and then continued presence at this desert outpost was a direct result of all of this effort. After completion of the contractor flights and delivery of the aircraft to the Army Air Force, Chuck Yeager flew the first of three glide flights on August 6, 1947. This was followed by nine rocket flights, and on the ninth flight, powered flight, on October 14, 1947, uh, he, he broke the, uh, the sound bear for a level flight. I have a copy of Chuck Yeager's pilot report for that uh, flight. Very simple, very terse, and I would like to read one small section of it. At 42,000 feet, in approximately level flight, a third cylinder was turned on. Acceleration was rapid and speed increased to .93 indicated Mach. The needle of the Mach meter fluctuated at this reading momentarily, then passed off the scale. Assuming the off-scale reading remained linear, it is estimated that 1.05 Mach indicated was attained at this time. I think that's one of the interesting aspects of flight test engineering. The intent was to break the sound barrier to fly faster than Mach 1, but the instrumentation only went to Mach 1. (laughs) The first X-1 flew until 1950, and then x one ship number 2 was built and used to test a 10% thickness-to-cord ratio airfoil. The original first X-1 had an 8% airfoil. It was built to examine the transonic region from 0.7 to 1.2 Mach. The next generation of X-1 aircraft were 5 feet longer, and uh, reached Mach 2.0 as well as an altitude record of 90,440 feet uh, and, um, and I already said Mach 2. Neil Armstrong flew the X-1B testing reaction control systems. It strikes me that these skills may have helped him on July 20th, 1969. The X-1E flew its final flight November 6, 1958 ending the flights for this series of aircraft. They flew them that long to maintain trained pilots of rocket planes for the upcoming X-15 program. The X-1E is uh, on a pole right outside my office. When I'm sitting at my desk, I get to look at that airplane every day. I'd like to show a brief video on the X-1s. And it is silent, we're not missing sound. This picture from 1953 illustrates the diversity of early experimental flight tests. The X-3 is in the center. Uh, the X-1A, the D-558-1, the XF-92. The, let's see, make sure I get this one right. The X-5, the D-558-2, and the X-4. This fleet of aircraft was used to study a broad range of issues across the transonic and supersonic flight regime. I would have dearly loved to have been an employee the day this the airplane were lined up on the ramp and this flight and this photograph was taken. The X-3 aircraft was designed for Mach 2 flight but never achieved that goal because the manufacturer had to use a less powerful rocket engine. The aircraft was retired after just 20 flights. The D-558-1 And the D-558-2 were X-planes, but in everything but name. At that time, the Air Force owned the authority to, and still does, own the authority to designate X-planes, and you had to be funded by an Air Force line item to become an X-plane. D-558s were Navy-funded airplanes, and so did not get that designation. The Dash-1 was a straight-wing jet-powered aircraft with flight research focused on the transonic region. Maximum level speed was less than Mach 1, and the principal investigations at that time were on handling qualities. The Dash 2 was the first supersonic swept-wing rocket plane to explore supersonic flight in the United States. The aircraft had both jet and rocket engines and could be operated conventionally, taking off horizontally or dropped from one of the motherships. The Dash 2 aircraft was the first aircraft to reach Mach 2. Following the Mach 2 flight, the aircraft continued to operate doing more mundane supersonic flight research tasks, while flying for several more years. The X-4 explored swept wing transonic flight in an aircraft without horizontal stabilizers. It was built by Northrop, it has some heritage with the flying wing aircraft. The first flight series for this program looked at transonic pitching moments of increasing severity that was characterized by what the pilots described as a wash, driving over a washboard road. This tailless aircraft suffered from instability in all axes at transonic speeds or reduced stability and they tried a number of aerodynamic fix but were never able to completely solve the issues. The X-5 was the first airplane to test uh, variable geometry wing sweep. The aircraft flew 133 flights, uh, is de- demonstrating the technology that went on to be used on the F-14, F-111, and B-1 aircraft. The swept wing, when it swept forward, provided, pre- created an airplane that had very good low-speed handling qualities. And swept back at 60 degrees, it had uh, good supersonic qualities as well. And at 60 degrees sweep, it matched the wing sweep of the XF-92. The Convair XF-92 explored the aerodynamics of a thin delta wing configuration airplane. It was a precursor for some of the 100-series airplanes that the uh, Air Force built. Um, Many of the high-speed research of this aircraft had severe pitch-up phenomena, and the XF-92 was the worst. It was known to require excellent piloting skills. Building on the success of these early X-planes and the conquest of supersonic flight, Curiosity now extended into the hypersonic regime. Early proposals called for modification of one of the X-1 aircraft or the D558 aircraft into a hypersonic testbed, but the NACA Research Aircraft Committee, in conjunction with the Air Force and Navy, proceed with the procurement of a new aircraft with goals of flying Mach 6 at 250,000 feet. This resulted in a contract in December of 1955 for North American Aviation to build three X-15 aircraft. The X-15 with its demonstration of piloted hypersonic flight was the culmination of this era of high-speed flight research. And it sets a, a, a cycle that we see several times at NASA. We achieve a goal and we put the technology on the shelf, and then we step back from it for a few years, and then come back, uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes when I talk about the X-43 airplane. The flights of this aircraft exp- expanded the envelope in every possible dimension. The aircraft went under underwent unprecedented airframe heating, pushed the state-of-the-art in instrumentation, and required a large portion of the Western United States as its test range. And as a result of that, it also demanded the development of an extended test range to be able to monitor and telemetry the, the flight data. Dry lake beds across California and Nevada were surveyed and prioritized as alternate landing sites in the event that there were issues and the plane could not make it all the way back to Rogers Dry Lake. In the course of its flight research, the X-15's pilots and instrumentation yielded data for more than 765 research reports. Retired Dryden Chief Scientist, Ken Eilef and his wife, Aerospace Research Center Chief Scientist and his wife, Mary Schaefer, have written, the aircraft returned benchmark hypersonic data for aircraft performance, stability and control, materials, shock interactions, hypersonic turbulent boundary layer, skin friction, reaction control jets, and aerodynamic heating and heat transfer. Between June 8, 1959, and October 24, 1968, the North American X 15 flew 199 times, taking 12 pilots to space and back. The pilots retroactively received their astronaut wings. A peak altitude of 354,000 feet was achieved, as well as a ma- maximum Mach number of 6.70. On December 20, 1968, the airplane was on the B 52 mothership on the back ramp of our facility, prepared for the 200th flight. The flight was canceled because of snowfall in the desert. Uh, They rolled the airplane back in and funding ran out and they never flew the 200th flight. Among their pilots was our uh, center namesake, Neil Armstrong again. Uh, Although he's best known for taking a few steps on the moon, at our center he established his credentials as a research test pilot. I grew up adjacent to Edwards Air Force Base and spent a decade working in private industry before I before I got to work for NASA. So my involvement with X airplanes did not begin been until that time. Prior to that I lived it vicariously. My exposure to these airplanes limited to air shows, the pages of Aviation Week and visits to Edwards Air Force Base with my father where I uh, got to see the, uh, the planes during displays. I have vivid memories of the X-15 and the lifting bodies on the ramp as we walk by. And when I speak to elementary schools, I always mention that seeing the XB-70 in flight was one of the defining moments in my decision to become an aeronautical engineer. In April 1992, as Dean mentioned earlier, I became a flight te- member of the X-31 flight test team. The aircraft had been built as a joint international effort between Rockwell International and MBB in Germany. The X-31 was built primarily to demonstrate enhanced fighter maneuverability and was equipped with a thrust vectoring system to enable flight capability beyond stable stall angle of attack. Uh, The X-31 was equipped with carbon-carbon paddles, which could be deflected into the engine to to deflect the thrust. And uh, when I arrived, the aircraft had flown 110 times and were being transferred over to NASA for envelope expansion beyond 30 degrees and then conduct of the close-in combat flight campaign. Ultimately, the aircraft was cleared for carefree maneuvering up to 70 degrees angle of attack and you can estimate the angle of attack by looking at the canard the canard is always into the aligned with the velocity vector so in this picture it's about 50 55 degrees angle of attack i'd estimate several flights were done it's In an early version of a helmet-mounted display is an example of some of the other research that was done with this. In addition, we did what we called the quasi tailless flight demonstration. The rudder was used to simulate, to to destabilize the airplane, simulate an airplane without a vertical tail, and then thrust vectoring was used to provide directional stability. Unfortunately, I didn't keep track, but uh, of the 592 flights that were flown, I spent about 200 of those in the control room looking at strip charts. And those are some of the fondest days of my career. That's, that's what I remember best, and I loved being in the control room, loved interacting with the pilots and the researchers. At the same time the X-31 was flying, there was the F-18 Harv, was being flown by NASA demonstrating thrust vectoring as well. Twin engine airplane, it used steel inconel paddles to deflect the thrust. And this was another airplane that was an X airplane in everything but name. For both of these airplanes, the thrust vectoring systems added a weight penalty of about a thousand pounds at the back of the airplane for the hydraulics and the the systems to to affect the actuators. The F-18 also required 1,000 pounds of lead to be put into the nose in order to get the CG in the proper location. This significantly changed the moment of inertia, and it became a very difficult plane for the pilots to conduct air-to-air refueling. Very few of them became proficient in that. Technology quickly advanced, and about the time we were wrapping up those programs, the F-15 active flew with a multi-axis thrust vectoring nozzle. The weight penalty for that nozzle was about 50 pounds, and looking at it externally, it did not look different from a production engine. And we now see thrust vectoring regularly in in modern fighters. The X-38 shown here was an experimental reentry vehicle designed by NASA as a possible emergency crew return vehicle for the International Space Station. The vehicle was based on the X-24 lifting body that had been flown previously. The maximum crew size for the ISS is dependent on crew rescue capacity, how many they can get off the, the station at, if, in the event of emergency. The crew return vehicle was designed to hold up to seven crew, which was the desired staffing for the ISS at that time. The vehicle would have conducted re-entry, just like the space shuttle. But would have used a drag chute to decelerate and then deploy the parafoil for landing. The uh, parafoil has an area of six hundred and eighty seven square meters and deployed in five stages in about a minute. And it, was a, it was a spectacular sight to see as that thing came out of the the uh, the airplane and then deployed. And it was designed to fly completely autonomously in case you had a decapac- incapacitated crew. My involvement with this program was as chairman of the Flight Readiness Review Committee for the second vehicle. Uh, The principal differences between the first and the second vehicle was it had an active control system, it had electromechanical actuators, and a 120 volt electrical system. There was also some modifications to the uh, parafoil system. Vehicle was carried aloft on the B-52. We got a lot of use out of the motherships. And it was always, as I said, spectacular to watch. Vehicle was flown successfully from March 1999 through March of 2000. Uh, When I got this job, I'd had at that time considerable experience presenting to flight readiness committees, explaining why I thought my airplane or my experiment was ready to fly. This is the first time I got to sit on the other side of the table and try and... Let the, op- let the other people have the opportunity to convince me that they were safe to fly. project was well prepared. I pulled out the report while I was preparing for this presentation, and we only had three requests for additional information and four recommendations. Project complied with all of these and and carried on. Although the X-38 was canceled and the space shuttle is now retired, lifting body legacy continues. Last fall, Sierra Nevada Corporation flew the Dream Chaser for an approach and landing test at our facility and this vehicle is still being developed for the uh, commercial cargo program for NASA. This is airplane, in my mind, is the epitome of an integrated airframe propulsion system. The whole bottom of the vehicle is the engine. The front part of the vehicle, oops, we'll go back, I'm not ready to do that yet. The front part of the vehicle is designed to focus the shockwaves so the the airflow gets compressed going into the inlet. The uh, copper part underneath is the motor and there's, it's about three feet long and there is about a molecule of air passes through it in about one millisecond at flight speeds. So during that time, you've got to mix the hydrogen fuel with the oxygen and ignite it. The back part of the vehicle is the exhaust nozzle and is shaped as an expansion nozzle. The vehicle is about 12 feet long. It's a relatively small vehicle. 3 feet deep and 5 feet wide, weighing about 3,000 pounds. It was constructed using steel alloys, uh, aluminum alloys, and titanium. The nose of the vehicle was a single machine piece of tungsten, uh, both for thermal reasons and to move the CG far enough forward. Uh, We used uh, ATB tiles, and there was carbon-carbon on the leading edge of the wings and the verticals where there was high heating. Uh, The system used a Pegasus rocket dropped from the B-52 to accelerate the X-43 to the (coughs) supersonic and hypersonic regimes. The first flight was unsuccessful because of uh, failures of the Pegasus system as it passed through the transonic into supersonic flight. Second and third flights were very successful, demonstrating the operation of a scramjet engine and the ability to accelerate a vehicle with a scramjet engine. The first flight was Mach 6.8, and the second flight established the record for this class of vehicles at Mach 9.8. Once again, I had the opportunity to chair the Flight Readiness Review Committee. This was a a much tougher job. When I went back and again looked at my records, our final report was put out a year after the formation of the committee, so we spent a year reviewing readiness. Uh, We issued more than 52 action items, we had, as well, we had to deal with three flight phases: <coughs> captive carry under the B-52's wing, flight with the Pegasus rocket, and then free flight of the vehicle. In addition, we had ground and uh, flight safety of a rocket and hydrogen-powered uh, vehicles. Uh, we had to travel to multiple facilities to view tests, uh, and, and I learned a great deal during that year about hypersonics, and it resulted in a six-hour briefing to our Airworthiness and Flight Safety Review Board. Uh, I'd like to show you a brief video of the (laughs) X-43. is the Pegasus, and then you can see the X-43 vehicle on the very front. I shall get bit. Launch on my mark. Five, four, three, two, one. Launch, launch, launch. launch. Sequencer reset. Ignition. Guidance on, we are supersonic. Supersonic. Ready to set. Ready to set. Set. Separation. Separation. Cal open. Cal is open. Fuel on. Fuel is on. RV is stable. RV is stable at this time. Thank you Okay, now I'll talk about where we're going. About two years ago, Dr. Jawon Shin, who's the Associate Administrator for Aeronautics at NASA, unveiled the new Aviations Horizons initiative for the Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate. The original goal was to fly five X-planes to demonstrate achievement in terms of efficiency and noise that ARMD had been working on for for about five to ten years. With the current proposed budget that showed up a few months ago, uh, we're going to have to scale back a little bit. Uh, We're still going to pursue X-airplanes, but it's going to have to get stretched out over a longer period of time. There's still a focus on revolutionary levels of aircraft improvement. Uh, Large reductions in emissions and and aircraft noise levels are still needed for us to operate around the world. One of the new X-planes I'll describe is the X-57 Maxwell, an all-electric airplane. Uh, Supersonic flight over land has long been prohibited by regulation, and supersonic commercial flight ended when the Concorde was removed from service. But there is still considerable market interest in supersonic flight with a desire to reduce intercontinental and international travel times. I will talk about our research and the status of the low boom flight demonstrator. And finally, I'll talk about the series of the proposed X airplanes for ultra-efficient subsonic transports. If you look at the modern airliner, it doesn't look much different from a 707 or from a DC-3 from that, you know, as a matter of fact. Aerodynamically, they're much more efficient. Winglets have improved a lot, but they're, uh, and there are tremendous advances in propulsion systems, making them more efficient. But in my opinion, it's time for a more radical departure from these configurations. I always start my discussion with this airplane with the same way. If you'd walked into my office five to seven years ago, told me you wanted to fly an all-electric airplane, I would have rolled my eyes. And that's exactly what I've done. I know myself well enough. Since that time, there's been significant advancement in all of the technologies needed to pursue this effort. The energy density storage for batteries has improved dramatically, thanks in many respects to the automobile industry. And the capability and reliabilities of electric motors have made them a viable solution for the propulsion system. Electric actuators have also shown steady improvement since my first involvement with them in 1985. Early in the development of this airplane, the engineers were telling me how easy it was going to make the wing to be. There'd be no fuel in it, no bladders, no sealant. And in my mind, I was thinking, you're going to have a host of different problems. With all those electric motors and actuators, you're going to be running huge cables throughout the airplane. And in my mind, I envisioned big copper wires, about two centimeters thick, very stiff. Well, they've made significant advances in this area as well. This is an example of the cables. They're, they're running through the wing of the airplane right now for a 450-volt system. And they are not cumbersome. They're very flexible. You tie knots in them. It was a... I always loved using this prop and was stunned when they brought it in, but another step that's made this technology viable. The aircraft will be flown in four configurations, and I'll describe the the associated development testing of each of these. Among the interesting aspects of this airplane to me is there's no CG travel in flight. You're not burning fuel, there's no consumables, and the takeoff and landing weights are exactly the same. The aircraft carries about 800 pounds of lithium ion batteries, and as I said, a 460 volt DC power distribution system. One of the challenges the team has been facing is thermal runaway of the cells. And they've recently conducted a test where they've repackaged them, induced a thermal runaway, and did not activate the rest of the cells in the pack. So they have a feasible solution for that as well. So with these advances, the aircraft is well into development and firmly on the path to demonstrate distributed electric propulsion. the team claims that they're ultimately they'll demonstrate an energy and efficient improvement of five times over no normal cruise profiles. One of the first steps in preparing to fly for this program is a wing mock-up with a mock-up electric motor. Well, a wing with mock-up electric motors was mounted on the back of a big rig truck. And this simplified wind tunnel was driven back and forth across the lake bed to gather data that was required to validate the design codes Langley was using for a, a laminar flow wing, a high efficiency wing. Another unique aspect of this is we're not working with major airframers on this airplane, we're working with small businesses, and that changes the paradigm of how you conduct operations as well. Mod 1 testing, as we call it, was done with an unmodified Technum airplane as seen here it was done to gather some baseline aerodynamic data and f- to provide pilot familiarization delivery of the mod 2 airplane is expected Let's see yeah it did change is expected anytime it's, it's it's due here in the next several weeks and the the principal difference is we've now put in all the electric systems all the batteries and we've replaced the uh, Rotax engines with 60 kilowatt cruise motors. Oops, wrong button again. Which are installed at the normal location. Mod 2 flight test phase will begin. We hope before the end of this year. Um, and the principal focus on this is demonst- envelope expansion and demonstration of the electrical power system's flight safety. For mod 3, we'll put mock-up motors along the wing. Uh, that I'll describe in a few minutes, and then the electric motors are moved out to the wingtips. Principal focus for this is uh, again, demonstration of the the ultimate configuration, and uh, in my opinion that this is going to be one of the riskiest flight tests we do for a while. With the engines out at the wingtip, my concern, single engine out and what the characteristics are going to be. Uh, they're, They're building in some systems into the electronics to deal with this, but you've got a pilot in there as well, but I think that's going to be rather sensitive. The final configuration will replace the mock-ups with small electric motors, and the purpose of this is to provide high lift capability during takeoff and landing (laughs) configurations. The whole wing becomes a blown flap. Once you're up and away in cruise flight, the motors feather the propellers fold back and make it uh, relatively efficient, and then you're flying a high aspect ratio uh, efficient wing. The next plane, and it's one that's a, a capstone for a decade of simulation wind tunnel testing and analytic code development, is the Low Boom Flight Demonstrator. Lockheed Martin recently completed the first contract on the vehicle, which was to take the design through preliminary design review. They successfully accomplished that late last year with the Delta review. Uh, For the next contract, a manufacturer will be selected to complete the design and build the research aircraft. And once again, it's going to be a -a one-of-a-kind airplane. Uh, Contracts should be announced in the next couple months. The the evaluation process is going on now. It's built for a single purpose. It's to demonstrate that you can build an airplane with a specific sonic boom signature. It's a point design aircraft. It's not designed to go into production. It's merely being built to design, to to demonstrate that you can build a low boom airplane. After completion of envelope expansion and validation flights in our restricted airspace, the airplane will be taken across the United States and flown over communities in rural areas to gather the data from uh, people that aren't used to hearing sonic booms as to whether the level's acceptable. And the purpose of this is to provide the data to the FAA and other regulatory agencies so that they can change the regulations and allow supersonic overland flight. My boss likes to point out the airplane isn't the experiment. The ability to fly air- supersonic airplanes over people is the experiment. <laughs> And it's In my opinion, the urban areas are going to be much, less, much easier to satisfy. You already have a lot of ambient background noise. Cars, trucks, trains, airports, but it's going to be the rural areas. Uh, the, the farmer that complains that his cows that have stopped milking because you're bom- booming them multiple times a day. If this signature is acceptable, future sonic business jets and transports will share characteristics with this airplane, but they won't necessarily look exactly like it. They will be long, slender airplanes by the nature of what you have to do. Even as we're preparing for the LBFD and laying the groundwork for it, at Armstrong we continue to do other activities to prepare for more supersonic flight and flight testing. In 2003, we collaborated with Langley and Northrop Corporation to modify the nose of an F-5E aircraft to what they thought, to mitigate the leading edge of the classic N wave. Uh, This was to validate the design codes they had developed. For the shaped sonic boom experiment, we collected data by an instrumented F-15 near field to look at the shock wave just as it's leaving the airplane. We had a motor glider about 10,000 feet below the airplane that was instrumented to gather data in the flow field. And then there was a, an array of instrumentation on our lake bed that they overflew. Uh, we flew, um, there were 42 pressure and acoustic sensors. After the modified airplane went by, we had an unmodified F-15 flew by so that we could get baseline measurements from this as well flew 28 uh, flights in this configuration. The next series of flight tests we did in conjunction with Gulfstream flying what they called the Quiet Spike. It was an ex- retractable 7.3 meter long lance-like spike that was mounted on the nose of our F-15B testbed aircraft. The spike is designed to create three small sonic booms that won't coalesce, so it again provides less overpressure and reduces the sharp N-wave. Between August 2006 and February 2007, over 50 flights were conducted with this airplane. Once again, we used the F-15 for near-field flight test measurements, the glider to capture data, and an even more extensive array on the lake bed. While these experiments validated that the design codes could be used for mitigating the sonic boom signature of an aircraft, there was one lingering question. What is the acceptable level of overpressure for a sonic boom? To help address this question, the pilots and engineers at Armstrong have developed displays that are both cockpit displays and ground displays and they show where the sonic boom is going to impact the terrain below and what the intensity of that sonic boom is. And that display will be in the LBFD. In addition, they developed a a flight test technique where by flying a specific profile with the F-18 aircraft, we could put a sonic boom of a desired magnitude at a desired location. We didn't mitigate the boom. The full energy of the boom went somewhere, but we could put a desired level at a desired point for testing purposes. So we, we flew over the lake bed. Again, the instrumentation arrays got put out. And then we also instrumented several houses on base to see how the the sonic boom propagated through the house. In addition, we instrumented the bowling alley because that represents best the the big block stores we have and so you can get an idea of how the the sonic booms propagated through those structures. In addition, we conducted a series of flight tests where we gave residents on base, uh, you know, basically a cell phone. So when they heard a sonic boom, they would indicate that they heard one and what level of objectionability it was. Was it too loud? (laughs) Now, this isn't fair because this is a community that lives under a supersonic flight test corridor. They're rather jaded. We hear sonic booms on a daily basis. But it did give us us some baseline data and allowed us to practice the techniques we're going to have to use out in the field and uh, when we test with a naive community. We also deployed the aircraft out to Kennedy Space Center uh, and replicated the, the array on the old shuttle runway, we wanted to look at how uh, humidity in the atmosphere affected the propagation. When I showed up at NASA in 1992, the engineer in the cubicle next to me was working on a differential GPS system and an infrared camera that would allow them to align their trajectories of the airplanes with the sun so they could get a Schlieren photograph in flight. Well, it took two decades, but uh, the result of those efforts is this fantastic photograph of a Schlieren photo in flight. And it provides you detail that you just can't get anywhere on, on the shockwave propagation. Uh, the technique's been used for decades in wind tunnels, but we now have the ability to gather it in flight. And they've developed two techniques. One is to use the sun as a background. Another is, again, our barren land space at the airport is uh, provides the model background provides an ideal surface for looking at the pressure variations coming off an airplane. I anxiously look forward to seeing the photo of our low boom flight demonstrator on the cover of Aviation Week. Finally, we continue to pursue the development of ultra-efficient subsonic transports, building from the, the goals of the environmentally responsive aircraft to dramatically reduce NOx noise and emissions. Uh, the original goal was a selection for two to three of these to become X airplanes. With the new budget, we're gonna stretch that out. Hopefully, follow down select from one of these for a follow-on to the low boom demonstrator. As you can see, flying wing, oops, flying wing type configurations, again. Are, the, are popular, but we also, and the, the their claims that they can reduce fuel percent up to 50 percent. I put three exclamation marks on that. Once again, this is a time when it's time to stop the analysis, build the airplane, and find out what really happens. Um, Jack Northrop envisioned his airplanes, the XB35, YB49, as precursors to commercial airliners. As you can see, one of the techniques to reduce noise is many of the configurations have put the engines up on the upper deck. That shields the the ground from the engine noise. Sometimes they put some verticals adjacent to it to also mitigate the noise. Another problem is these, these pictures don't show it, but embedded engines is another area that they're looking at. And that's one where I think you've learned as much as you can from wind tunnels. You've got to go build one and instrument it and test it. Another aircraft under consideration is the strut braced wing shown here. Uh, it gains its efficiency from a, a very high aspect ratio wing. There's only a moderate, a very light sweep, so it would be a, a slower speed airplane used for more regional travel. I happened to have the chance to visit the museum at Orly a few years ago, and they had the Hurel Dubois HD-31 on display, which if you've not seen, is a strut-based wing aircraft that was flown in the 50s. French flew it for a number of years, I believe, is a science aircraft, very, very similar, but it was a much smaller cord wing. Another concern with these radical aircraft is how they have, the effect they'll have on aircraft infrastructure. But if you're saving 50 percent on operating costs, they'll figure out how to fund the airport changes. I'd like to thank you very much for your kind attention. I've compressed 70 years of X-Plane flight into 45 minutes. I personally feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to spend 26 years of my career working on X-Planes. And I look forward to the upcoming flights, and I think the next decade holds a great deal of promise. We're going to see some very unique and interesting planes, and I hope We are able to see an airplane, a picture that rivals that ramp picture I showed you early of uh, four or five different airplanes out on our back ramp. At this time, I'd like to give you guys the opportunity to ask me any questions. Thank you very much.